podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another Wagon Wheel with your host, Jared Kimber. That is my name, and I've remembered to say it today. Thank you to everyone who helped support this podcast slash live Spotify chat slash YouTube video when we put them up, especially Manscaped. You can get 20% off and free worldwide shipping when you put in the code REDINCA, all one word, and then you can tend to your groin. Who wouldn't want to do that? Shave it up, make it all nice, do all the things that you need to do, and good for you, you know, 20% off free worldwide shipping, all that sort of stuff. Big thanks to Bodyline t-shirts as well, but also to everyone who's been supporting us on Buy Me A Coffee and also on Patreon. And of course, if you're a first class member and above, you can get your questions asked first on this here podcast. So let us have a look at what we have here. Graham says, I've heard you say a few times that finger spinners should develop a knuckleball. Do you think wrist spinners should be doing the same? The reason I say finger spinners specifically, Graham, is because finger spinners have long fingers. And in order to be able to bowl the knuckleball, normally you need long fingers. So I would think it is a ball more suited to them. Also, the first person that we saw really bowl the knuckleball is a non-seam bowler, um, is Sun on the And um, he's a off spinner. Um, I don't have a problem with everyone. I, I think most seamers should try it, and uh, certainly wrist spinners should try it as well. But I would have thought that it suits the. I, I would have thought that it suits what off spinners are doing a little bit more, and it it would be harder to hide for a leg spinner um, than an off spinner would be my guess. So it, you know, with that with that in mind, I think it probably suits off spin more than leg spin. But yeah, I I think I don't, I just don't understand it. It seems like a really good ball to me and a very good way of getting the batters out of their shape in, in limited overs cricket. And uh, I certainly think more people should be doing that. Uh, Christopher says, could the pace playing pandemic translate into ODI cricket or is the ball not good enough? Feels like we've had a few lower scores recently and was wondering whether the global average has lowered in the past few years. It certainly hasn't lowered. In fact, I did a podcast about this. It's the first time in history that the one day average is higher than the test average. Uh, T20 average has gone up as well. That said, I kind of feel recently we've seen a couple of low-scoring ODIs, whether that's any, you know, uh, anything coming or not, I don't know. But what I would say with that is that um, as far as these things go, you have, um, uh, you know, it would need to be a lot more. But the India-West Indies second ODI, which I covered for TalkSport, saw more wobble ball bowled in that than I have seen in a long time. Now, I do think that particular pitch suited it. Um, So... Sometimes that can be a factor. But since they have made the white ball a little bit, well, reinforced it, and Kookaburra made all their balls a little bit better, maybe it could happen in white ball cricket as well. I wouldn't have thought it was about to happen. Um, It's funny how much of this is not accidental, but, well, kind of accidental. Like white ball cricket is white ball cricket because the white ball is just much easier to bash around than the red ball, right? Um, So there is a big part of it that, um, does lean that way. Uh, James says, why do bowlers, generally speaking, change pace far less than baseball pitchers? Uh, baseball pitchers don't have a surface, I think is probably one reason. Um, they don't have a big, dirty, long, uh, you know, seam in the middle of the uh, ball that allows it to swing or, or, or move sideways. So cricketers probably have other advantages that they use. 
uh, in T20 cricket. Um, I think it's probably getting to, I mean, certainly at the death, I would say it's probably similar to baseball. And that's the one that probably makes the most difference, right? Like, I, I don't, if you're in a test match and you bowl a ball at 130 Ks and you bowl a ball at 145 Ks, I don't think it matters as much, but death hitting is very similar to baseball pitching. And that's certainly going uh, a similar direction when you look at the speeds, um, would be my guess. But uh, it, I think it, they are fundamentally, even though they're very linked, they are obviously fundamentally really different pursuits um and you're trying to get different outcomes one you're trying to get someone to miss a ball three times that's not specifically what you're trying to do in test cricket um test cricket might be trying to get someone to hit the ball in a certain era but certainly the further you get into t20 games i think the more you you certainly see that um as well the other thing is that i think you can get when you're when you're changing speeds you're getting the ball to, in, in baseball pitching, getting the ball to really swerve in the air. That's not quite the case in cricket because we're not throwing it. So we don't have the ability to put the exact same kind of revs on the ball. Um, so that might play a small part in that as well, James. Uh, Sandip says, Rishabh Pant opened the batting for India in uh, in the second one day, one day. I saw a lot of comments on Twitter saying it was a good move and that the right-left combination would come in handy. Is there any evidence to say the right-left combination works better than right-left or left-left? I, th- I think I'd have to check. I think um, uh, Crickviz did something on this. My last check was that left-left is still the best combination, um, uh, and that certainly causes the biggest problem. I think... There's like a slight bump, but it's nowhere near as much as anything. I think later on in the innings, it can play a bigger part when you have spin um, because obviously, uh, you know, there are certain spinners who have massive advantages over different kinds of batters. I think also back in the days when you didn't have that many left-handers, so we're talking about in the days when there was 15, 20, 25, even under 30% of left-handers and they were rarer, a left-handed was still slightly annoying. And you've got to remember that there's more left-handed batters at the professional level than there is anywhere else. So that would have upset bowlers more. I cannot imagine now, outside of maybe somewhere like India, where there just aren't that many left-handed batters, but I can't really imagine some outside of India where that's not a, um, what's the best way of putting it, where, where bowlers just aren't used to it. So, look, there probably is a small advantage, but I've looked into it and... Um, uh, Sandeep, as far as I'm concerned, it, it's not. It's certainly not the advantage that we think. But left, left, my memory was the best. The best advantage to have, um, and uh, yeah. But in the middle of T20s, when you're looking for matchups and you're looking for you know a little bit of a a bump, then it, then it can be quite handy. Johnny says, "How well does folks have to perform to skew the wicketkeeping spot for England? Assuming his glove work is class, what does he have to average with the bat to stay there?" Uh, does he stay even with 26? Well, he might stay with 26 at the moment. Look, I think because of Bairstow, they're probably going to want him to be a significantly better batter than Bairstow. I, th- I would have thought that would be what they were looking for. Um, uh, Butler, I don't know if Butler's going to play that much more com- you know, in, in the future. So, uh, But either way, they're probably going to want him to be able to show he's at least at Butler or Bairstow's level because they know what those guys can do. That might change if Bairstow just starts to make a lot of runs as a batter. But my guess is Bairstow's never going to average much more than 36, 37 with a bat. So he's always going to be not in and out, but certainly not a uh, not always an undroppable force. Um, they don't trust folks as batting in the same way they do Butler's and Bairstow's, partly because if you have a look at Butler and Bairstow's career, they bat quite high for their first-class teams as well. Well, sorry, higher. 
you know, I mean, Butler's batted at five in a test match. I don't think they'd ever bat folks at five in a test match unless some sort of weird England seven all-rounder team or something like that. Um, there is a thought that he's a bit more of a limited batter, and we've seen the best of him at test level already. Um, and I, I think that is something that maybe if you've only seen him play a little bit at test cricket, you might not, or it might not be an automatic thought. Um, but certainly for people who've seen a lot of him batting, um, they don't rate him in the same area as Bairstow or, or Butler. Um, so if he could, if he could manage to be a handy number seven, um, and average around 30, he might be able to keep himself in the team uh, with that. But it's, it's a really interesting question because they're so bad at batting in every other position, right? So it's tricky. Um, I've heard you ask before which players from the past would have done best in modern cricket, T25 works and, and all. Um, which current cricketers do you think would have performed best in the WG, uh, WG Grace era, cow dung on the pitch and all? Well, they would have done pretty well. I mean, if you put, you know, Nokia... Uh, if you put Darren Stevens, it's Darren Stevens into that era. Um, he'd probably be uh, too fast for the guys back in those days. Um, and the amount of revs that modern spinners get on the ball would probably confuse them. So I think they'd all do pretty well. If you're looking for, if you're looking at the batters, I think the batters that would have done the best would be someone like Ryle Dravid or Kane Williamson because they play the ball very, very late um, and they watch the ball on the bat probably more well, it seems anyway, they watch the ball on the bat more. And in those days, that's what it was about. Um, you know, it's a different game than it was back then. Bowlers, I mean, anyone tall would have been unplayable on those old wickets. Um, uh, Suleiman Ben might have been the best bowler of the world. Uh, you know, ragging the ball on on, a, on an unstable surface from six foot eight um, would have been uh, quite hard to play with. But yeah, I mean, you know, the, the if you look at, if you look at the footage that we've seen of like some of the old cricketers, like WG Grace was still playing first class cricket into 1910, I think. Um, I think that's right. Uh, he was playing for Crystal Palace just up the road from where I live, actually. Um, uh, and he, uh, you see the footage of him batting. It's not good. You're not looking at him going, um, oh, geez, he's going to, you know, he'll be, he'll be able to score a, a quick 50 off Brett Lee or Shoah Bakhtar, um, he really does look like a very, very limited player. Um, to be fair, and at one stage he was the absolute, you know, pioneer. Um, uh, so I'm not not having a go at him, but the game has changed so much. Um, you know, we don't really get confused now if someone's a, you know, a spinner or, or a quick bowler, and they used to up until the 1920s, right? So um, things have changed a lot. But yeah, I think, any bowler would do well in that old era, but batters, yeah, I think Kane Wiesen and, and Raul Dravid, um, probably of the two that come to mind of someone who just watches the ball really close onto the bat, um, which would, you would need to do because the pitches were so unstable back then. Ian says, "We brought Nelson left out for the West Indies tour. It got me thinking on great bowling partnerships: uh, Thompson, Lilly, Walsh, Ambrose." Uh, who- who are the current scene bowling partnerships we'll still be talking about in 20 years? I think they'll be talking about Southie and Bolt for a very long time in New Zealand. That's probably their greatest ever partnership. Obviously, Neil Wagner has probably confused that a little bit, and Kyle Jamieson might come along and, and do that. But certainly, um, Bolt and Southie's partnership is phenomenal for New Zealand. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of anyone else. Oh, well, uh, if Rabada and Nokia play for any long period of time, that's an incredible 
partnership. Um, we haven't seen enough of that really yet. And I don't know if Rabada will continue to play test cricket. I don't know if Nokia will continue to play test cricket, sadly. Um, so we might miss out on that one, but that would be a very good one. Uh, you know, what you're really looking at is probably players of a sort of similar age um, in that sort of way. I, I, I would think that, well, I would hope that we we're talking about Ashwin and Jadeja for a very long time. To have two spin bowlers of their quality um, in at the same time is just absolutely phenomenal. So I'm trying to think of anyone else I've missed in partnerships. Um, we kind of missed out on Murali and Harath. That would have been absolutely great, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, I think those are probably the main ones because I think some of the others are seen as more triumvirates, aren't they? Even the Neil Wagner one. But I suppose at least Bolt and Southie were there beforehand. Um, but there's no doubt that the you know the triumvirate of um, of Stark, Cummins, and Hazelwood is probably another one there that is going to be remembered for a long time. And I wonder if we can keep both of them fit and healthy. If Bumrah and Siraj become uh, that for India as well would be a fantastic one. Going ahead, one last question. I think somewhere here, and I've lost it. <coughs> oh, there we go. Satchmo says, in, is the 1984 West Indies side the strongest team ever assembled, in, excluding the World Elevens? At Brisbane, the side was Greenwich, Haynes, Richardson, Gomes, Richards, Dujon, Lloyd, Marshall, Holding, Garner, Walsh. <sighs> okay. So that's, I think that probably beats the um, Invincibles team from Australia um, in 48. I think that's stronger than anything South Africa put on um, late in their period. Um, Australia, what Australia would have had. Yeah, I don't think any, I don't think anything Australia can have can beat that. Gillespie, McGrath, Warren, then the next bowler isn't as good as Walsh, is it? Um, yeah, it's a fair it's a fair one. I mean, to go back through them all, I'm trying to think, but I think on overall, I'm trying. What's the weakest link in that side? Greenwich Haynes, Richie Richardson. So Richie Richardson and Gomes, sort of the weakest links in that side. I wonder how much weaker they are than. I mean, you're talking about Australian batting lineups where you had Gilchrist batting at seven, didn't you, and averaging almost fifty, um, and then you had what? Damian Fleming as the fourth bowler. Brett Lee is the fourth bowler. Very talented players. But, yeah, it, it's a great question, Sashmo. And, you know, it might end up getting in my head and I might do something else about it. Well, thanks to everyone for those on Patreon. And now we'll get to uh, questions in the room. MT, you there? Yes. So I've uh, heard you speak extensively about the wobble ball and how that's fundamentally changed test cricket toward uh, advancing bowlers in the last four to five years. So my mm -hmm. question is, how do you see batsmen overcoming this and dominating again? Because it seems to me like it's next to impossible if you don't know which way the ball's going. We should make the pitch longer. Isn't that what they did in baseball? I think in baseball, when the pitchers got on top, did they lower the mound or they'd make it longer or something, something like that um, back in the 60s or 70s? Look, it's a very, very fair question. I don't know if I have a good answer to that because I'm not an international batter and almost all the stuff I've done so far when talking about the, the wobble ball, I've talked to bowlers so far. My next thing is obviously then talking to batters and, and being, you know, I'm Manus Labashain. I, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to get him on a zoom one time and, and chat to him about it. I know he got dropped a lot, but also 
he came into that and like it, almost every test series he's played in, I think the wobble ball's played a major part and yet he's made a lot of runs. Um, is, is there something different about him? And, and the other thing I noticed was there was a couple of, felt like there was a couple of newer batters who came in who like Devin Conway, um, Marnus, uh, even someone like Henry Nichols who've come in in the era of the wobble ball and seem to be struggling less than the players who were already around and then the wobble, came, wobble ball came around. Um, but I, I think it, look, it's, it's a really fascinating question because there's been a bit of a plateau, but I don't know if, if anyone saw the one day um, a game between India and, and the West Indies the other day, but Odie and Smith, who I would say is about the most one dimensional bowler in the world. He literally comes in and he bowls fast. He doesn't really bowl slower balls and he doesn't swing the ball and he doesn't sing the ball. He got Virat Kohli with a wobble ball in a one day game. And I'm sitting there going, God, if, if Odeon can pick it up before he can pick up a good slow ball, what does that mean for our game, right? <laughs> like, you know, are we just going to get a bunch of people bowling between 85 and 95 miles an hour and just nipping it around and no one will ever be able to hit them? I, I don't know, um, MT is the, the best best answer for that. Um, I, I've been trying to work out whether it's – because you can't – the problem is you can't cover both edges. So is there a way a bit like reverse – seam where you play inside the line uh reverse swing sorry not reverse seam um so the old martin crow thing and i think the pakistani batsmen batters work this out obviously um playing more reverse swing domestically they quite often just played for it to move in one direction the ball right so if it was always if, if swinging in was the bigger danger right if you played inside the line when it swung in you would hit it and if it swung away it didn't matter because you'd miss it by a foot and a half and the only ball that would get you would be the, you know, um, was it Akram pitching on leg and taking off type of, type of delivery, right? I wonder if there's a way of playing inside the line and making sure that you don't get bowled or LBW and that you just play and miss a lot outside off stump. The difference is that, and this is just an eye test, generally it feels like the wobble ball doesn't move as much, which means that if it just goes dead straight, you're still a chance of getting an outside edge. So I don't know if that will work in the same way that it once did for reverse swing. But reverse swing isn't a poison pill, is it, anymore? And it was at one stage. And people did, you know, it went from people not being able to bat against it. I mean, you know, have a look at some of those incredible old spells, um, Safraz Nawaz at the MCG and, you know, um, Imran Khan in the early 80s and some of the things that was a macro meant Wacker Yunus did. W reverse swing still really important, but it's nothing like that anymore, is it? So batters did work that out. Um, I don't know how they work this one out. It's <laughs> probably the better way of putting it. But that's what batters do. You know, they eventually, you know, they have to, otherwise they don't get paid anymore, right? No, very interesting. Thanks, Sharon. No worries. Cheers, mate. Vamshi, you there? Nice bow tie, Vamshi. Thanks, Jared. How are you? Not too bad. What was your question, mate? It's a slightly longer question, if you don't mind. I wanted to say uh, I just discovered the Double Century podcast, season one, and it was super fascinating about how the game keeps evolving. Uh, so coming to my question, we've seen that sports science and professionalism ensure that skill level in almost all sports is always improving. And in cricket, we have seen that we've moved away from specialist wicket keepers and now we prefer batter keepers. So we could probably say that pure specialist wicket keeping is a skill in decline. So are there any examples mm -hmm. to believe that while most skills improve, some skills actually decline since they come at the cost of pushing the boundaries in another aspect? Well, I don't think wicket-keeping as a skill has declined. Oh, sorry. Uh, so in your podcast with Steve Hardison about fast bowling, 
we now know that mm-hmm. bowlers are much more accurate and can consistently bowl over 140. But does that mean that they're not able to bowl longer spells compared to, say, people from the past? So is there a trade-off somewhere when one skill is preferred so another skill comes down? Yeah, I don't think the skill... I mean, I don't think... You're not really talking about skill there because if, if a fast bowler can't bowl a long spell, we're not saying they don't have the skill to bowl a long spell. We're saying they don't have the stamina to bowl the long spell anymore. And it's much easier to bowl a long spell if you're bowling at 115 kilometers an hour than it is if you're bowling at 145. That's a, a fitness and endurance thing. And if you want your bowlers to consistently bowl at 145, 150, 155, you're going to have to understand. And we always have, I think, in cricket that they will not be able to bowl the same sorts of long spells. So I don't think that's a, a skill that people have lost. But there's always trade-offs in this. I wouldn't say that the the skill of wicketkeeping has gone. What I would say is that the people who are naturally talented at wicketkeeping no longer get jobs. So there is a trade-off there. You would assume that um, as we go towards professionalism, you know, things like being an all-rounder, that, I mean, there's a reason why baseball doesn't have all-rounders and cricket does have all-rounders. And part of that is the market and how much people spend practicing on particular skill sets. We've never really had that in cricket before because of the way that cricket's really been run as a government-led sport rather than a private enterprise. So you could imagine that people are going to be, you know, hyper-specialized players, right? So some Samuel Badri might be, you know, a very good example of that where he has to bowl almost all of his overs within the first nine overs of the game. Um, those sorts of hyper-specializations will come into cricket and make sense. And if that's the case, what you might get is less rounded players um, in certain situations. So you might get players who um, are absolutely brilliant at one. I mean, Ben Dunk is is a very good example um, in T20 cricket. Like Teams have kind of worked out that he's not very good at anything except for hitting left-arm fingerspin, but it means that the other team can't play their left-arm fingerspinners. Right, that kind of hyper-specialization is going to come in and it means that he might, in future, someone like Ben Dunk might practice even more smashing left arm fingerspin everywhere and not worry so much about the other thing, which means that his skills will degrade. Um, and I think you're already starting to see that with with certain bowlers. Um, Tamal Mills um, kind of given up being worrying about bowling in the power play. Um, and you will see, I think you will see other players that will do that sort of stuff. So when, when there's that hyper-specialization for one player, and that works, then other players will probably try and copy that and that will happen. Um, and so little things will happen. And then you'll get, you know, it's the same in, you know, our basketball is going through a really interesting thing. Um, American football is going through really interesting things where certain positions are not valued the way that they used to be valued. Um, you know, running backs used to be the stars um, uh, outside of quarterbacks not that long ago. And running backs are kind of interchangeable now. We, we know so much more about running backs. And in the NFL, they keep they throw the ball a lot more. So you will have fads and and different times where things happen. So, for instance, I think up until the wobble ball, um, I think being really good with the seam and knowing what you're doing with the wrist position, if you bowled at 82 miles an hour, wasn't particularly seen as that special. Um, and now um, those sorts of bowlers maybe are going to be, you know, Ollie Robinson is a really interesting uh, bowler in that he might be valued more. So we go through different fads and, and different things. And I, I think watching other sports and watching cricket, a lot of it comes to what you will pay for, right? So the more that people will pay for, people seem to gravitate towards, you know, filling those kinds of roles. And I you know, or, or what, you, what you pick. And I suppose one of the best ones with that in, is before Bruce Reed and Mozamakram, 
no one bowled left arm seam in, in international cricket. It just didn't exist. There was almost none of it, right? And then once teams started picking very average left arm seamers, they all get pushed up um, into that in, into that environment. And now we've probably got to the point where I've just done the IPL. You have a look at, at the IPL list of left arm seamers. It's actually kind of disappointing list. The bowler, I know Sam Curran and Mitchell Stark aren't on it, and they would obviously change it a little bit. But you look at it, and it's like, so I've ranked them as Natarajan, Trent Bowl, Mustafa Rahman, Ashdeep Singh, and Sakaria as my top, what's that, five? I mean, Ashdeep, <laughs> you know, he's, he took a lot of wickets last year, but I don't, I wouldn't trust him to bowl, um, and he could have a terrible regression this year. Um, Sakaria, I think, might have even got dropped mid, midway through or certainly struggled. Um, Natarajan hasn't played that much cricket. Um, Rahman has a dodgy arm and we don't know if he'll be able to keep up what he's doing. We had that everyone pushed left armers and um, we have a lot of left armers and we probably have a lot of very talented right armers who have not got a lot of work because they've been overlooked for left armers um, who they're probably more talented than. And you could say the exact same thing of wicket keepers as, as you were saying before. So those sorts of things happen in the way that the economy of sport works um, and far more so now that we're more professional, we understand these things. And it's like, you know, uh, teams will be looking at this going, okay, we need this. And we want finger spinners now, but we only want finger spinners who can bat. And if you look at, if you look at uh, the off spinners, uh, so my top five off spinners in the IPL all have batting talent. And let's have a look at my bowlers, uh, my left arm finger spinners, the top three all have batting talent, right? Whereas in the leg spinners, we're not worrying about that, right? The top of the top five leg spinners, I think only Rashid Khan can hit a little bit, right? So we, you know, we put different values on on these players, but we always have in cricket. Like that's a, you know, if you look at South Africa, South Africa always wanted a spinner in their side, and England's probably another one. Always wanted spinners in their side, but they wanted spinners who could bat a bit, right? Who could who could bat who could be handy number eights and hold up an end, right? So we've always had those sorts of trade offs, and you know the West Indies liked bat, uh, keepers who could bat a little bit more. Even though they had fantastic specialist wicket keepers, they kept moving. They, they were moving towards keepers who could bat way before anyone else was because that was something that they, they saw in their game. So I think those sorts of things happen a lot. Um, it's, probably, uh, it, it's probably fair to say. Great. Thanks, Jared. No worries. Thanks for your question. Who have we got next here? Ollie. Yeah, thanks. I, I really enjoyed your your work on, on kind of class and cricket and that and the Duncan Stone podcast in particular. Oh, cheers. It really rang true with someone that grew up playing cricket in, in the Midlands and then going to university down south. Like that that split is was very clear. I just wonder whether you've got any ideas, kind of practical ideas about how to address that class imbalance in cricket. And also I guess it kind of ties into the intersectional idea with race as well. So kind of going forwards, because yeah. I'm, I'm quite skeptical about what's being proposed at the moment. Honestly, if, if you want, want to be a bit really, really honest, the best thing to do is make sure that cricketers get paid a lot. And there's a lot of cricketers get paid a lot. So, you know, I, I'm, county, I, I don't know what the county um, pay, or pay scale is, but there aren't that many players on more than hundred to $150,000 a year, which is very good money, obviously, in the UK. But it's... You know, you probably get that playing third division football, right? Um, and so one of the, the first things to do is to make sure through the 100, through women's cricket, that there's a lot of money to be earned by a lot of people because I think then naturally things change. I think you saw that in the IPL um, 
you know, for instance, that a lot of people then went, oh, there's a real career here. And I've seen it in Australian cricket as well. So that I think that's one of the most important things. I don't think they'll ever get it back into state schools because I think anyone who tries to push cricket into state schools will literally be hit by the fact that they're um, out of touch with modern society. Um, um, but it really does that. That I think that does need to be a big part of it. Um, and the other the other thing is that it's it's about who all these counties and all, and who the ECB hire. Right? It really is. Um, from all the way up, all the different staff, everyone who's involved, if you keep hiring people from the same socioeconomic background with the same skin colour, with the same, you know, um, sexuality, they're going to keep hiring those people themselves. So I really think for English cricket, that is all a big part of it. The other one is that, you know, English cricket being consistently successful again and being marketed a lot better. The 100 marketed cricket so much better than English cricket has. I mean, England had the number one test team in the world how many people in England even knew that when it was going on, right? Um, the World Cup, I think, until they won the World Cup, uh, there wasn't that much said about the one-day team, and they were blitzing. And and uh, you know, there's if that was if that was even the rugby team, you know, or any of the other sorts of sporting teams, I think there would have been a bigger thing that uh, there. So I really think once you have more opportunities and you start to look at your hiring practices and you start to work out how these things work, I don't, I don't think the state school system is, is one that is going to get by. That would be the other one. Um, but who you hire and who you market and how you market are all really important. You know, I've lived in the UK for uh, what, 14 years. Couldn't cricket could not be marketed worse in the UK. Absolutely terrible. Again and again, they fail the 100 was the first time I thought they're actually trying to get people who don't like cricket to look at cricket here. All those things really matter. And once you widen the net, then then you have the ability to shake it free of the, the sort of the old networks. And it doesn't need to shake free of the old networks at the moment because what those people say is, well, where are all these other people who like cricket? Right? And it's too easy for them to be able to say that. Um, and uh, so I really think that the, the, all those sorts of things are, are the way forward. Um when it when it comes to this uh but it's not it's not easy because cricket and class in the uk i mean they go back <laughs> they go back a long way um but I've, I've always said and you know you you do the history of cricket and you look at it and you're like this sport started as a street sport this sport didn't start at fucking hambledon right this did this sport didn't start with you know with with, with lords and ladies this sport started on the street with people playing it um, and it was allowed to be turned into something else. And if that's the case, we know how good cricket is and we know how good cricket can translate to people who don't come from those sorts of backgrounds. You know, we've seen that within England, but also the whole cricket world. So um, it really is, I think, it, it, you know, it would be very hard for the ECB to do this because of the sorts of people who end up working for the ECB a lot. But it really ha does have to be a top-to-bottom change with the way that they think promotes um cricket um all the way through does that make sense mate yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense thank you yeah i mean it's just something i, I was also thinking that when you know the big savior of english cricket is sir andrew strauss it's like you know how deep is that restructure gonna go in terms of the tackling the class and race issue yeah i think um it's, they keep hiring the same people because they keep hiring the same people does that make sense like you know ed smith and Andrew strauss and alistair cook and these sorts of people and they get 
and, and then they have success with them and it's like, yeah, but you haven't really tried other people. Um, <laughs> you're not, you're not actually widening the net in any particular way. And the, and the same sort of people come through. And also county cricket is very good at forcing people to fit in, which is a huge problem, of course. Um, because that means even when you get outsiders, um, they end up being a little bit like everyone else anyway, because they're, they're sort of squished into the system. And I think that there's probably been a couple of counties where that's maybe not been the case. Surrey was probably a famous example in the nineties, um, where, you know, it was phenomenal, but I, I think too often it's not even, it just, they just force people to all be very, very similar to each other, which is a sport thing in general sometimes. But I really think that, you know, it would benefit I mean, the, the whole sport from the way that England play on the field to the way that it's run would all just benefit from completely a different way of thinking. And as you said, that's not what they do. They go back to what they know and they will continue to do that again and again. But thanks for your question, mate. No, thank you. Uh, Johan, you there? Hey, Jared. Hey, you doing, mate? What's your question? Okay, so uh, this question's a little bit late, but I found this topic really interesting. In the recent women's ashes test, Towards the end, I think Annabelle Sutherland was bowling down the leg side, I think as a defensive measure. And I heard somewhere that she was warned for negative line bowling. So uh, firstly, could you explain a little bit about what this negative line bowling is? And secondly, do you sometimes think uh, cricket suffers from its own rules because they are a little vague? No, Laws. Johan, come on now. No, it's not. It's not. I don't think it's a vague law. I think if if we didn't have it, you'd have a lot of teams bowling down leg side on purpose and it would be shit cricket and no one would want to watch it. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a test match where that has happened before, but I have and first class games and it's terrible. The law is in place when you are purposely bowling down the leg side to not and not threatening the stumps and also not trying to get a dismissal. Um, so uh, the best case scenario, or well, the worst case scenario is an off spinner bowling outside leg stump over and over again down the leg side because the other team's trying to score it six runs and over um, and you're trying to stop them from being able to hit boundaries again and again. Um, it's terrible to watch. Um, no one wants to see it. So they brought laws in to, to, to bring it in. So essentially, um, I'm trying to think, did it happen in the New Zealand-India test match? Was Will Somerville maybe um, uh, warned for it? And... It really isn't very good cricket, and so that's why we have it. When when you say vague, I mean, I don't think it's particularly vague if you look up the laws. It's, I think it's quite specific, the way that's been written. Most of the laws are written quite well. It's just that most cricket fans don't know what they are or uh, what the details are of them. That's why people say they're vague, right? Um, so I think in this particular case, it's, it's a rule there to stop negative, boring cricket um, because we don't want to watch it. And realistically that's the right reason to have a law or or a playing condition in in a sport is if you want to make it better for people to watch um and more engaging and i can promise you if you've ever seen uh this i'm trying to think that of a major test match where this happened did zimbabwe do it to england perhaps once um but if you've ever seen it in a test match it's terrible um, and so you should be at least be trying to dismiss it. And umpires are within their right to say, you are bowling this line to completely stop this person to be able to play proper cricket shots. Um, and as such, you've been warned. And if you do it again, 
et cetera, et cetera. So I, th I think it's probably fairly fair. I didn't see Annabelle Sutherland do it. It's very rare that happens with seam bowlers. <clears throat> um, it's usually a thing that spinners try and do um, to negate someone who's on fire. Um, and there are defensive me me methods that you can try that um, still keep wickets in play. Um, so it's not like, you know, we're stopping defensive bowling. We're stopping a form of bowling. But to be honest, we first... That form of bowling was an attacking form of bowling at one stage, um, and we changed the, f the game then because no one wants to see someone facing 25 balls down the leg side in a row. Um, so we've put two laws in place. The first law was only having two fielders behind square on the leg side, and the second law was um, uh, that, that, that players can be um, penalised for consistently bowling down leg side. Um, uh, when then uh, in a defensive mindset, you'd have I'd have to go back to find find the law for you, but I don't think it's written particularly vague um, in there. Um, but uh, yeah, um, just another thing. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry yep, about yep. saying rules instead of laws, but uh, <laughs> no, that's alright. I think it is pretty clear that Animal Sutherland wasn't doing it on purpose, so that's why I feel it's a little vague. Because how do you know if a bowler is doing it on purpose all the time? Well, if someone bowls 10 consecutive balls down the leg side, you know it's on purpose. If if Annabelle was bowling and she had six fielders on the leg side, I think the umpires would be within their rights to believe that it could be on purpose. If not, it's essentially it's a wide at a certain point, right? Like I don't really understand. It doesn't matter whether she's doing it on purpose or not. If she bowls 10 consecutive balls down the leg side in a way that the batter can't play and there's no real wickets in play, and it's completely ruining the flow of the game. Um, and only what one shot is available, the leg lance, or if it's short bowling, um, only one shot, like, I don't know, the tickle-pull shot is available, then it's ruining the spectacle of the game, and the umpires are probably, again, within their rights to be able to call that as a wide. Um, if, you're, if you're bowling... If you're bowling really wide of off stump, and we're talking with a 7-2 field or an 8-1 field, and you're bowling a metre and a half outside off stump, and it's not traditionally a wide length, but they're really, really wide, after a while, umpires will start to call wides. Right? I've seen it happen over and over again. And then if you bowl one ball on that line, umpires probably won't call it a wide. But once they think, okay, this is the tactic, and they're now starting to push it a little bit, the umpires will start to penalise you. Um, I've got absolutely no problem with that because... That otherwise we would get very extreme fields, otherwise we would get very extreme bowling, and I don't think it would uh, make for a particularly good contest. And so in these cases, we have to give the umpires the support um, to keep the game travelling in the right direction. Thanks for your question. Drew, you there? My question was, um, in cricket, we see that people with unorthodox actions or techniques mostly do better, like Steve Smith or Bumrah. So, would you recommend uh, that uh, trainers or coaches let uh, younger kids try out their actions, see what they feel is best, then instead of doing the basic actions? Dhruv, have you played club cricket? Uh, the most I've done is under 19. Okay, so if you play club cricket, you will see a collection of the weirdest actions and weirdest batting techniques of all time. But the players can't, aren't very good, right? And... There's plenty of people with bad techniques, biomechanically inac uh, you know, um, biomechanically wrong bowling um, actions and um, unsound batting techniques who don't star, right? Um, now, what you could say is that if everyone experimented, we might have 
we might find more stars, but we might also find a bunch of really, really talented players who experimented and didn't make it to the top level because they have a stupid technique. Um, so do I believe that... Uh, I, I think that probably one of the worst things that ever happened to cricket was the MCC coaching manual. Because I think at a very early stage, we decided what worked and what didn't work. And we were probably way too early and we didn't really know. Uh, we didn't have biomechanics. We didn't really understand head position. Also, I think the MCC coaching manual comes out and within 10 years, bowlers are already too fast for traditional techniques to particularly work well. Um, so I'm with you, but that's not safe to say that like people with outlier tech, you know, the majority of the best fast bowlers of all time are very, very biomechanically sound. And the majority of the best batters of all time have very, very straight bats. Um, I think those are two very, you know, very, very normal things. So, uh, yes, there are other things that work. We will have more Mitchell Johnsons and Lassif Malingas and Muralees and um, uh, Ajanta Mendeses and, you know, even someone like Samuel Badri and, 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 and so, so forth if we, if we went away from the, uh, the, the style guide. But at the same time, I think we'd also have a bunch of probably very talented players who wouldn't get anywhere near the top level because they weren't coached correctly. Um, so it goes both ways, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. Thanks for answering that. That's all right. In fact, I'm just going to follow up, mate. Sorry, I've already removed you. But it's a bit like being a musician um, at a certain point. So if you want to be remembered forever, you're probably going to have to do music in a different way, right? Like you're going to have to experiment, come up with a new style, do something, you know, meld two styles together, whatever it is, do something that no other musician's done before. But there's probably more failed musicians who've tried to do that than there are other musicians who are already really talented and they just went with what was already popular. So, you know, it, it's up to you. But I'm I'm all for it. I'd love to see it. But I can understand why people don't do it. Keshuf. Hi, Jared. Can you hear me? I can. What's your question, mate? Yeah. Uh, well, I hope you got your World Cup timeline in place now. Oh, yeah. I mean, as I said, there's a million World Cups, mate. And I'm on, I'm on live on air. I, I don't think I'm going to be able to Wikipedia things while I'm live commentating. Don't know if you've ever done ball by ball, but it doesn't really allow for you to check up on the dates as you're starting a casual conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. But uh, my con uh, question right. is actually related to commentary uh, because uh, I prefer listening to talk sport uh, over uh, what we get in India here because... Uh, for this reason, so uh, I heard you during West Indies versus England T20s and now India versus West Indies. So I saw that, you know, your role here is more of a full-fledged commentary. And in that one, it was more of a, you know, statistics based and, you know, you were coming in mm -hmm. and uh, giving a lot of input. So which role do you enjoy more, like calling the game full throttle or the other one, like, you know, the more Andy Zaltzman kind of a role that you did in earlier uh, yeah, it's mo more to do with the team size as much as anything. So in England, because it's England series, TalkSport are an English radio station, so they have more people. And so uh, we have the ability to have someone in my kind of, that, that sort of um, statistical slash analysis kind of role that I do there. Whereas obviously when we're doing the overseas tours, we don't have as many people. So, um, uh, you know, I get called in to commentate there. Uh, look, I've done, I've done analysis um, on TalkSport. I've done... Uh, calling on talk, talk sport and also for ABC and for SCN in Australia, I've done um, the co-commentator 
uh, role, you know, that usually former players get. I kind of like them all. I don't really have a favorite um, one. Ball by ball is really intense. Um, once you get good at it and you understand what your filler content is, so you understand the moments when you've got nothing to ask the person sitting next to you and you can still talk without and and um, and feel the air, um, it's really not, I, I want to say easy because that's not an easy thing to learn. But once you've done that, it becomes almost instinctual and automatic. Um, doing the analysis stuff's really cool because like if I don't have anything to say for an hour and a half, they're just like, well, don't say anything. Like say something when you have something to say. So it means I probably sound more wise on that one because <laughs> I'm only talking when I've got something in my mind that, you know, I've spent time researching or that really interests me. And and the co-coms one is really interesting as well um, because I don't have to worry about forcing the conversation forward. I don't have to worry about saying the scorecard. Like, so when you're doing commentary, you have to worry about, you know, the score, what radio station you work for, introducing your hosts, calling the ball correctly, all these sorts of things are going through your head. When you're doing, so you, when you're doing co-coms, you literally just watch the cricket and when there's a gap, you say something or when you're asked something, you say something. So all three of them are, are really interesting to me, but they're very different. I don't think, I don't think anyone else in cricket's ever done all three of those jobs. I'm trying to think if, if I'm missing someone. Um, I can't think of anyone else who's done um, all three. Well, Zoltzman doesn't do ball by ball comment. He doesn't do ball by ball commentary. Um, so I think he's done a little bit of co-commentary in his time. Um, but as far as I'm aware, other than maybe he might have done some on Test Match Sofa back in the day when we all did it. But certainly as a professional, Andy's never called by ball, ball by ball that I'm aware of. Um, it's really rare to do that. what I do. And I suppose it's just different broadcasters see me in different ways. So in Australia, I suppose being an Australian voice um, uh, uh, and, and uh, I brought something different to the broadcast so than the former players did. So they went with that thing. Um, and then, uh, you know, originally, well, Test Match Sofa, but then going into Talk Sport, uh, when they had the IPL coverage, I was quite handy for them to have on the IPL coverage because of the ability to, um, you know, because I followed the, the, the tournament a lot more than other people in the UK did. And then when we got to the England rights, they wanted they wanted to make the team bigger and they wanted that position filled and um, uh, they probably thought of me because of all the analysis stuff I've done. So the ability to sort of go between those three roles is it's not a very natural thing, but I suppose my career is not a very natural thing. Um, so more often than not, you you know you become you know if you look at someone like Ebony Rainsford Brent, she's just like I'm going to be the co-coms person, right? And you look at someone like Adam Collins and he's like, he's going to be the commentator. So that's what most people do that. But I kind of get asked to do everything and, I, and I'll do almost anything for money. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, this, this musician reference you just gave, uh, it, it kind of applies here too, because we have to do something different. For example, the banter I heard yesterday, like, you know, uh, one I can remember is uh, you said, let's welcome back the best death bowler in the world and uh, uh, Hami to the commentary now. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, just quickly, a cricket-related one. Uh, have we seen the end of uh, Broad and Anderson? And if not, do you see them playing next summer together in any game? Have we seen the end of them? No. Uh, have we seen the end of one of them? Maybe, but I don't think we've seen the end of both of them. Whether they'll bowl together in a game, though, I'd be highly doubtful. But thanks for your questions. Oh, is that Siddharth? Yeah, yeah, that's me. Oh, beautiful. I can hear you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So my first question is that 
Uh, so I read this piece by ESPN, so in which it's, uh, it was talking about the greatest ODI bowlers of all time. And in some ways, I thought that it's a really hard uh, thing to measure, like compared to test matches, because obviously test matches, it's a bit easier because of different surfaces. You you can see how spinners react to different surfaces and how fast bowlers react to different surfaces. But uh, in ODIs, there are dead bowlers, there have been. Uh, obviously, spinners ball the middle overs and so on. So uh, they rated Glenn Magra as their best, and I don't have any beef with that. That's that seems really standard. He's one of the most accurate ballers to ever play the game. Mm. But so that's my first question: How accurate that study was? And then my second question is: I, I didn't see. I, I should say, Siddharth. Uh, sorry, I'll go. I'll, I'll do the first one, then you can, and then you can follow up. Uh, I didn't see the study. To be honest, I hadn't heard of it until you just mentioned it. So I'll have to go back and have a look at it. Uh, myself and Jonas, um, a couple of years ago, he has his runs above average metric. And I think Glenn McGrath came out of that on top as the best one day bowler of all time. I think Joel Garner might have been second. So it doesn't surprise me that Glenn McGrath comes out on top. Um, but I, I think you're underestimating test bowlers as well. Like, I think there, there's more roles in test bowling. Like, for instance, Joel Garner, who I've just mentioned, is arguably the greatest first change um, or first and second change seam bowler of all time. Um, and he averaged, what, 20.8 or something in Test Match Cricket without using the new ball that often. Um, so you certainly have those positions in Test Cricket as well. Um, and those numbers, you know, everything is, all those sorts of different things. You also, then you've got a seam bowler from Asia is going to have an inflated average over someone else. So I think all those things come into test bowling averages just as much as they do into ODI averages uh, or records or who is the best. But it, for what his economy was compared to other players in his era, considering he was a death bowler as well, and the amount of wickets he got, um, I think Glenn McGrath is probably the greatest one-day bowler we've ever seen uh, with, yeah, probably Joel Garner very, very close behind him. Yeah, can I ask a second question now? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So my second question is that I have heard the Pat Cummins uh, conference yesterday and I think first of all he managed it pretty well. Uh, but there was one sentence in it that made me chuckle a bit, which was uh, when he said, yeah, J- uh, Justin Lambert, he has taught us how to wear a baggy green cap in the last four years. And he, like, he said it with a bit of an eye roll from what I could gather. But like, was there, uh, even if you, and I know that we don't see a lot of this, lot of the stuff that uh, goes behind of it, so uh, we don't know the whole story. But uh, uh, from the documentary test documentary as well, we saw that sometimes Langer got carried away with the Australian way in inverted commas, and rather than just focusing on the cricket a bit more. So my question is, does that play a big part of his removal in the basic sense, and or am I just reading too? I think that is why he has been removed. All the nonsense that former players have come out and said. When I've told the players under Langer, their biggest concern has been that there's a big thing, and it wasn't just Langer, it happened under Lehman as well, of just like Australian players going up to their coaches and the coach going, mate, you just got to try harder. You're wearing the baggy green now. You just got to grit it out. You just got to be tougher. You just got to be stronger. You know, got to be more aggressive, all this sort of stuff. And they're like, you know, I think, I can't remember if it was, I can't remember who the player was, but Sam Perry wrote it. I can't remember if it was Adam Voges or someone else. That speech was given um, before Langer uh, by Darren Lehman. And, t- and the, I think it was Adam Voges. It might have been Ed Cowan. It was one of them anyway. Sort of put their hand up and went, yeah, that's all great. I'm having technical problems with my cover drive, though. Um, can you help me out? Um, and 
that is the era of the Australian cricketers that are coming through, especially now that they're going off to play in the IPL and these leagues around the world. They're getting really good specialist coaches that they're working with. Like if you go to the CPL, you know, and you're a fast bowler, you get to work with, you know, Roddy Eswick. And um, if you're in the IPL and you're a spinner, you get to work with, you know, these great spin bowling coaches and all that. And I think they, they really felt like they weren't getting the same level of coaching advice, technical, and how to be better cricketers from Justin Langer, who was like, you got to run through a brick wall and you got to, you got to bat until you vomit and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, yeah, great. Fine. We get it. We're playing for Australia, but what we really want to be able to do is this. Um, that was my understanding of what the problem was. Um, and it's certainly, it's what I thought would be, I, I, I mean, I think it's a whole generation of people my age who've been saying this for 20 years. That Australian cricket is just like, we're better because we're better. Ah, we're, gonna, we're harder, we're faster, and all this sort of nonsense. And it's like, you know, it's, it's bullshit, right? We're better because we produce really, really good cricketers um, because we have, we have a really good climate to be able to do that. We have a really good sports professional system to be able to do that. Let's not forget, you know, Australian cricket are really good when it got professional before everyone else. Um, we've got a very good club system, which develops players in really, really interesting, high-pressure um, environments. Um, it's not just because we're Australian and we're lucky, right? It's like there's a reason for this. And I think we got trapped in this whole, oh, you put the bag of your in on, you play really good. I've been to Shield games between Victoria and New South Wales that were like fucking wars. No one had a fucking baggy green on, right? <laughs> They're Australians versus Australians. It's nonsense at a certain point. And I think that perhaps my generation and the, certainly the generation after me are a little bit more sentient of that, a little bit more conscious of the bullshit. Whereas before, in the 90s, God, the bullshit was everywhere. <laughs> it was hard to breathe for the bullshit in Australian cricket. And I think now there are, you know, someone like George Bailey just doesn't really buy into it. It doesn't mean that he doesn't think playing for Australia is special because he does. It doesn't mean that he doesn't think that Australian cricket do play cricket a certain way because I think he does. But he also realizes that if someone's got a technical issue, telling him to grin and bear it and put the, pull the baggy green on tighter isn't going to help them, right? And, you know, I think what Cummins was saying and I think what a lot of these Australian players are saying is we had motivators, now what we want is a coach, Right? That's not slagging off Justin Langer. It's saying that the different players want different things. That's a perfectly normal thing. But it got spun in this different way because a lot of people like Justin Langer. Right? In fact, it got spun in a different way because a lot of people hate Justin Langer and a lot of people love Justin Langer. And so it became this almost this culture war. Oh, the snowflakes can't handle the tough man. Fuck off. They want better coaching. Different coaching. A different style. And I certainly think that that is a very, very big part of it. Hey, can I ask one more, if you don't mind? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so, uh, just not really a question, but uh, are you going to do a video with the great cricketers soon? Because I love them. And, uh, you know, they take on the whole cricket thing. And I think that this encapsulates what you said, that these millennium uh, snowflakes as a new age cricketer that I referred to a lot of times, that, you you know, you're not tough enough and so on. That, that kind of bullshit. And they're like, no, it's not that. It's that you guys were programmed into thinking that you were, uh, you had to be tough to play cricket and all that kind of shit. So are you going to do something with them or it's... I mean, I've known Sam for a long time. Uh, I know Ian a little bit as well. I knew the other guy from the great cricketer who's not so, uh, not so well known <laughs> anymore. 
Sam's been over at my house for barbecues before. I'm a big fan of his, uh, uh, him as a writer. I've been on The Great Cricketer at least once, probably twice, back in the day, probably before they had a YouTube channel. Um, I don't, yeah, I'm, actually, I remember doing it, weirdly enough, because they're Sydney boys. I actually did it in Sydney, but in a hotel room, and I couldn't hear a word they said because I think I had an infection in my ear. Uh, but yeah, no, I'd happily go on if, if, if the boys ever want me back on again. I, it's a bit rude for me to in, invite them on to, um, invite myself onto their podcast. And uh, But, you know, it, Sam doesn't do as much writing anymore, but he's written some really good things, and I'm sure one day he'll write something and I'll get him on my podcast. And, and uh, um, Ian, you know, Ian's... Uh, quite a good good guy you know enjoy hanging out with them when i see them um i think they've done great i, I that great cricketer in some ways i think you know sam and ian are very different to the sorts of people that me and my friends were but the conversations are exactly the same that we had um when we were going when we were going up and it is i think it is a real reaction to what that sort of nonsense that you saw with the justin langer story this week um or the last couple of weeks has been it's just a lot of us just going you know, just enough with the bullshit. Don't sell us on the bullshit. Sell us on the truth. And um, I remember someone saying uh, you, uh, saying this who worked with Australian cricket for 10 years, very close to the players, and he said it, they're all the same. They all come in and their first 10 tests they would play for absolutely nothing um, and you, you can motivate them and you tell them about the bag of green and they bleed green and all that sort of bullshit. After that, they're professionals. And you have to treat them like professionals. And he said, quite often we don't because there was still that, at that stage in Australian cricket, still that sort of other feeling of, oh, you're lucky to be here. No, they're not. They're there because they're fucking good. And so, um, you know, I think the great cricketer really have, uh, other than skewering the nonsense that goes on in club cricket and grade cricket and, and district cricket, they were also very good at, at skewering the nonsense of the Australian bullshit cycle, which, you know, uh, it doesn't make me particularly popular when I talk about that in Australia, but fucking, I, I lived through it. So you're just going to have to forgive me. Um, thanks for your questions, mate. Glad that we can get you on. Ikanth, I think you're there, but you're on mute. Uh, good. So the question was uh, quite an extension about the last question itself. And mm -hmm. actually, uh, to thread it back to Sam Perry, he wrote an article about uh, Justin Langer and having like a mid-ground on how to evaluate the situation that Australia is in. And it's kind of sad because that was one of the most uh, prudent things out there. And a lot of dialogue was uh, very divisive and let's say not productive. Yes. So uh, with that and maybe not so much, but with the English cricket coaching thing as well, with uh, Anderson and Broad leaving, in the future, how do they have a better dialogue? What do you think people should do to have a better dialogue? Like say when um, Australia's new uh, coach is being introduced, uh, England are going to try their uh, not so successful rotation thing. Honestly, when it comes to cricket teams, the lack of communication within cricket teams, if it was an office, you'd never, you'd never um, get anything done. Like they are, the, the way that cricket teams are run is still so poor. Um, you know, the rest and rotate. Have a look at the England thing. Like they were supposed to be releasing that team at 5 p.m. Oh, no, sorry. I think they released the team at 4 p.m., there was supposed to be a statement at 5 p.m. and there was a statement at 6 p.m. My guess is that that second one was moved back because Broad and Anderson were only just told, whereas actually they should have been told days in advance. Um, so the way that cricket teams do these things are still really poor. I remember Mitchell Johnson, was it 10-11 Ashes? Like he, he played in the Gabba, got left out. We were told he was rested. 
for Adelaide. And then at the at Wacker, he took a bunch of wickets, did the press conference. And at the Wacker, he said, um, yeah, because I was dropped for the last game. It's like, what's the communication here? <laughs> like, there really is just a basic level that was quite poor. And I think you saw that with the Justin Langer and the players. I think Justin Langer probably didn't quite fit into the modern way of the, the players wanted to say what they wanted to say. They, that isn't them abusing Justin Langer. It isn't them saying that they wanted a new coach. Because I think for a lot of time, I don't think they did specifically want a new coach. They wanted Justin Langer to do what they wanted Justin Langer to do, um, which is different than, you know, I certainly was never, it was never said to me that they didn't want him, but it was just this lack of communication. And a lot of it comes from a lot of the coaches and a lot of the general managers and a lot of the selectors come from the old school which is a really, there was no communication. You, you know, you, so quite often you'd listen to the radio to find out if you were getting played, getting picked, right? A journalist would call you up to tell you you'd been picked or been dropped. Um, and we're moving from that to where we should be, which is a professional situation where, you know, Anderson and Broad almost should have been part of the conversation. And they would have said, look, we want to play. And you would have sat down with them and you would have said, look, we understand that you want to play, but we know what Anderson and Broad can do. We believe that our backup bowlers can win this series. This is why we want you guys not to play. We still think there is a huge role for you guys going forward in English cricket. Um, and on major tours, we certainly would want one or both of you playing um, or one of you, both of you on in the squad. But we also think we're too dependent on you and you're not taking the amount of wickets on overseas tours that we need. Um, and so we're going to look for other options here. My guess is that they, if they had that conversation, they had it at the last minute. Um, and that's a terrible way of doing things. And I think um, it looked that way. And it almost always looks that way when England cricket do stuff. And have a look at what India with their captaincy nonsense and, you know, some of the stuff that went on with South Africa. And we're not at a very professional state uh, with, this, with this sport at the moment. Uh, with Australia, like coming to the... A new coach, how do you think they should handle it so that there's no... I, I just think that the whole sport needs to take a step forward. And and I think that uh, professional sport is different than an office or a factory or a business in some ways. But the basic tenets of society still exist. And how you, you know, there should be permanent feedback between players and coaches in both directions. The same way that if you're running a company, you want your employees to be giving you feedback on how you're running the company, but you also, as a boss, want to be able to give you feedback to your employees. As far as I'm aware, that doesn't seem to be really how any professional cricket, cricket team works. And it's like, well, why, why, why would you not listen to Pat Cummins? Why would you not listen to Steve Smith? Why would you not listen to Marcus Stoinis or Adam Zampa or any of these players who all have interesting different ways of and all need to be treated slightly differently? And I think that that is a big missing part of professional sport. This, old, this idea that the coach is God, it's gone. This idea that the coach will yell at you until you play good, it's gone. And I think that we now need to start thinking about these things in a more professional way. And I get it <coughs> too. A lot of people who play professional sport don't want all this as well. Like a lot of the, especially the older coaches and the selectors and, and even some of the senior players, because it wasn't, they, they got in this to get away from real jobs. But it's like, if you want to be the best that you can at your job, this is what you do. This is how it works, right? It's like, like how many, the amount of times I've had conversations with players and they're like, yeah, but, you know, I'm like, you want to be the best in the world at this. And this other bloke training eight hours a day, you're not know, training two hours a day. That's what professionals do. Right. And 
too often in cricket. You, I don't think people understand. I'm, I'm trying to remember if I did a podcast about this recently. Um, I don't think people understand how little some cricketers put into getting better as cricketers. Um, and the same with coaches and the same with selectors. And, and it's, it's a real general malaise in cricket. And when you, um, Nathan Lehman told me once that when, if you bring players in for a one hour meeting, they think that's their job for the day. My wife is looking after our kids for the second half of the day. Oh, so I can do this podcast. She's probably already done eight hours of meetings before that. Right. Um, you know, anyone who's seen my schedule will know podcast meeting, podcast meeting, podcast meeting, um, you know, over and over and over again. And uh, that's what this is. And that's how you get better at these things. And these sorts of open dialogues help coaches get better at their jobs. They help selectors get better. And I think at the moment, it, it, it's still that sort of hand of God role uh, within cricket. And um, I do think there's a, a problem there. Uh, thanks for your question though, mate. And questions. Uh, last two, Joseph, Matthew. Adele. How you doing? What's your question? So my question was, how do you think uh, the relationship between players can be professional? I mean, they share so many intense moments together. So do you think they can be professional? I understand this, but like, you know. Joseph, have you ever worked in a sales team? Have you ever worked in uh, making a film? Have you ever worked in a, a car parking garage where um, it's high? I mean, I've worked in many, many places where it's high pressure and you have to do things and you become a team and you end up your own thing. Let's stop. Let's stop pretending these people aren't doing jobs. They're doing jobs and they have a team and it's going to be a different relationship than other people. But to say that they're not prof professionals and they're not doing a job is not true. Every cricketer in the world is bound by, you know, their local, um, uh, you know, work health safety regulations and all those sorts of things, right? Sexual harassment places, racism co conduct. They're all, it's a job, mate. They get paid to do a job. They're under contract law. I don't know what your, your thinking is different with them than anyone else. I am saying, like, you know, won't it be a little more meaty and, like, you know, friendship, like, relationship between players yeah but that, that's the same in any job uh, do you do you work a job or are you a student no never i have never worked well any job that you have you're friends with certain people you they might be you, your colleague uh, might be the person that you're working beside and that you're very friendly with but they might also be the person who is coming for your position um or your job or your sales or whatever that's absolutely the same in all these jobs. There are different things about this job. Like, for instance, there's the public pressure, which is really interesting. Uh, there's also the fact that you're probably only going to have a 15-year career at most, uh, which is really, really interesting, again. And you're going to have to get a whole new career of which you're probably not going to be trained for at the back end of it. But, mate, it's a job. They can't sexually harass each other because there are workplace guidelines in their job that say they can't do that. Right? They can't say racist things to each other because there are workplace guidelines that say that you are not allowed to do that. It is a job. Do such things happen in a cricket team? I mean, there are people who achieve so much, yet they do have such thinkings. What are you saying? Do they sexually harass each other and do they and do they say racist things? Yeah, do they say what, what, what? such cricketers have any such things? Of course. They're humans. If you can find me a group of humans that don't have a racist involved with them, then that's not a very large group of humans. If you find me a group of humans that don't say something sexually inappropriate to another human being, again, it's a very small group of humans you're talking about here. That's just normal. They're just humans. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I can't say that any, any stronger. 
um, Joseph. They are human beings and they do the same things that we do. They're just very good at specific skills and they live a different kind of life in some way um, in that quite often because they were so talented when they were young, um, they have a different outlook on life than a lot of other people. Um, but they're human beings. They have all the same problems that normal human beings have um, for good and for bad. Sumya Dip says, will the T20 Cup set to be expanded to 20 teams? What do you th- what do you think uh, has to do the structure of qualifying should be? Will it be more? Yeah, I think eventually it will be probably more like football uh, in that it might be sort of continent-based um, sort of thing. I don't think in, in, in the short term they'll do that. I think while it's 20 teams, they'll probably make sure that the um, uh, it's still the best 20 teams if they can. But as we get bigger, um, I certainly think that we'll, we'll see that. Um, uh but, you know, they'll gerrymander it the, way, the same way they do in football to make sure they hit t- key marketplaces and make sure, you know, the subcontinental Asia will get extra teams, right, to make sure that all the subcontinental teams get in, including Nepal, if Nepal is giving the money and all those sorts of things. But, yeah, I think they will eventually, I, I think eventually outside of the top, what, six teams in the host, uh, we'll see proper qualifying events and, and everything. It'd be great, um, you know, see England playing the Dutch, the Irish, the Scottish, um, uh, 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 you know, Jersey, those sorts of things, Germany, um, Italy. And then says, seeing how well Tim David is doing in the PSL, what are his chances of representing Australia? Yeah, I don't think the PSL specifically is changing that. I think just over the last little while, he's just keeps making runs, doesn't he? And he keeps starring everywhere. And um, uh, I know that within Australian cricket, they've been looking at him for quite some time. Uh, you know, obviously, when I was at Scotland, he was playing for Singapore, and you know, going through the footage, I was like, "This looks like a very good player." I don't understand why he hasn't done better in the Big Bash, and since then, um, he's done very, very well. Um, what else we've got? Oh, Kyle was just saying that they lowered the mound, and they talk about doing it again in baseball. Yeah, I mean, obviously in cricket, I don't think we're anywhere near that at the moment, especially as it would be confusing because white ball cricket, the averages are going up with the bat. Um, but if you suddenly see one day cricket scores coming down and T20 cricket scores coming down and it is all the wobble ball and I don't think it's all the wobble ball, I think that's just a factor, then uh, then at that stage, yeah, we might do something drastic in cricket um, because we might have to. We might make the balls, we might go back to the old kookaburra balls because uh, even if they were terrible and they got soft, um, at least people could hit them. But huge thanks again to everyone for coming on. It's been a very interesting uh, Spotify Green Room chat again. Remember, if you're coming in halfway through and you want to listen to the whole chat, go to Red Inca. Uh, we release these episodes on Saturday, and uh, you can you can certainly uh, hear them all there. We put up quite a few of these episodes on YouTube, although not all of them end up on YouTube just because of our schedule, and sometimes they fall a bit back and they're not as timely as they should be, but we try and put as many of them up on YouTube as we can. Huge thanks again to Manscaped. Remember, if you have testicles and you would like them shaved, try Manscaped. Use the code REDINCA, all one word, and you get 20% off and free worldwide shipping. So big thanks to them. Also, Bodyline T-shirts. There's some great T-shirts. I'm pretty sure Bodyline T-shirts has just released a bunch of new T-shirts. So if you're a cricket fan, it's probably worth going over and having a look at some of their new stock. And everyone on Buy Me A Coffee and, most importantly, the Patreons. This podcast only exists because of the people on Patreon. So if you can help us out there, it would be great. We're trying to get enough Patreons so we can move to a third podcast every week. Talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.